Um, seems kind of bizarre uh, word, but it was a kind of a monetary term. Um, and, and it, but the story is kind of weird. It's kind of like the parable of the talents, if you remember that. But, but it's, it's got some little odd pieces to it. But let, let me just read it to you. And you tell me if you think it's kind of odd or not. So anyway, beginning at Luke chapter 19, if you have your Bibles or you can read it on screen, uh, beginning at verse 11, says this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, that's a phrase you want to kind of think about and hold on to. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Um, that is, uh, just in case you need to know this sometime, if you're over, you know, in ancient days, um, a mina was made up of 100 drachma. Uh, a drachma was a day's wage. So when somebody got a mina, that was about three and a half months' wages worth of money. And it took 60 mina to get a one, din- or one talent. Does that make sense? So drachma, mina, talent. Pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, whatever. So, I, you know, inquiring minds want to know these things. So... Anyway, so he said, put this money to work, and he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. They said after him, we don't want this man to be our king. So they sent a delegation to tell them that. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy with a very small matter. I take charge of ten cities. He's now in the kingdom. Says, uh, the second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And the master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it, laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. Master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, you know, I I, I don't know about you, but I I read that and I'm kind of like, really? (laughs) Is is this a, a great parable? Are we supposed to get something out of this? And I suppose you can get something interesting out of it, you know, be a good steward of your stuff, or you get something interesting out of it and say, well, you know, there will come a day when we're all going to stand before God and give an accounting of our lives and all that kind of stuff. But, but it just seemed too weird because I kept trying to ask myself, who is this parable talking about? Who, who is this main character in here? And, and the more I read through it, I, the, I initially thought, well, this is Jesus. Jesus is coming, you know, he's going to get appointed king and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and there's a sense you can probably get that out of this, but, but I, I began to read this, and I thought it was kind of odd, isn't it, that, that it is Jesus who is hated by everybody. He's going to go get himself appointed king, but everybody hates him. And, okay, well, people hated Jesus. That could fit. 
So he's going to go and he's going to go to this far city and he's going to get himself appointed and people are sending delegations say, I don't want this guy to be my king. And, you know, obviously they're going to get in trouble at the end because he's going to come home and he's going to wipe them out. He's going to kill everybody who's against him. And I'm thinking, hmm, doesn't really sound like the Jesus I know. I'm thinking, okay, it doesn't really sound like the Jesus that, you know, in just another chapter or so, he's going to be weeping over the city of Jerusalem saying, even now, if you knew what would make for peace, you could, you know, things could have been different. I'm thinking, that doesn't really sound like the Jesus I read about in other places. I think about this idea to say, you know, he was so mad at the one servant. So he said, you should have at least put my money out on loan so that you could make interest off of it. And then I'll sudden scratch my head and going, but I thought the Old Testament talked about not doing that. You know, that's, that's called usury. That was, you know, when people would loan money and they would charge interest. And well, that happens a lot today, by the way. And, uh, and Jesus said, or the Old Testament said, that's not a good thing. You got to just loan money. Help people. Don't, don't be stingy with your money. Just help. I'm thinking, that doesn't really sound like something Jesus would say. It would be so contradictory to the Old Testament. And then I thought, well, this idea of, you know, he who has so much is going to get some more, and, and, you know, there's some implications in that that's kind of weird, too. You know, say, well, if you've got nothing, we're going to even take what you've got away from you. That really doesn't sound like the Jesus who talked about compassion and helping the, the needy and the hurting and the lost and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I just said, you know, there's just so weird things in this parable. And I, so I did a little research back, and I started reading about this. And what I found out was that there is another guy who this really describes. His name was Archelaus or something like that. I think I had that mispronounced. But it was the son of Herod. And about 40 years earlier, this guy had actually done these things. He was there in, in Judah, and he was the son of Herod, and, and he had gone from Judah to a far country. He'd gone to Rome, and he'd had himself appointed king over Judah. And in the process, the people just hated his guts, because even as a prince, he was just a ruthless kind of guy. I mean, he killed people, wiped them out, extorted people. He took what they had. He just wiped them out. And when he came back, he did the same thing, only even more. He brought all those people in that didn't want him to be king, and he killed them, literally killed them. And he gave what the people had, and he gave it to the rich friends that he had. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of interesting. That really sounds like some of this guy. And then I began to look, and if you have your Bibles or your smartphones and you can flip over there, uh, if, if you kind of follow along, what's the very next story that's in line after this parable? Do you, somebody, somebody look that up and just tell me. that. What, what's the very next one? It's the triumphal entry. And, and so you have these two stories, and, and what do they say in the triumphal entry? They say, Hosanna to the king. Welcome, king. Of course, they, you know, a few days later, they're, they're all shouting, crucify him. But, but you get the idea. I, you know, but there's, there's these two stories of the kingdom right next to each other. And, and, and you start reading, you remember when we, we were back at Easter and we were talking about the triumphal entry and all that kind of stuff? And, and who was it that came in on a donkey in the triumphal entry? I mean, Jesus came in there. But symbolically, what did that mean? Do you remember? This is a quiz, a test. Remember we talked about this? Who comes in on a donkey and who comes in on a stallion? The peace. The king of peace comes in on a donkey. Jesus came in riding on a donkey. 
It is the, the military guy who comes for oppression and to do battle who comes riding on a stallion. And, and we have this picture of, of two very different kinds of kingdoms. Very different kinds of kings. And I began to think, well, maybe Jesus is just not telling a story about, you know, using your abilities well. But maybe he's really talking about life in the kingdom. Maybe he's really talking about this idea of, of who you're going to have for your king. What kind of king do you want to have and, and who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow this king of oppression? Or are you going to follow the king of peace? Are you going to follow this king who rides into the city and goes directly to his palace and celebrates his coronation? Or are you going to follow the king that rides in on a donkey and moves his way right to a cross. Are you going to follow a king whose life is about exploiting other people and oppressing other people, or are you going to follow the king whose life is about sacrifice and about redemption and renewal and newness? Jesus is giving an invitation for these people to choose the kind of king you want. You read through the rest of the Gospels, you'll, you'll find this idea of this king just pops up all the time. It, it's the king who comes, and, and you hear in the words, and the people are saying, you know, we have no king but Caesar. We have Roman leaders riding on script above his cross. This is the king of the Jews. And people come and say, no, 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 no. This, he said he was the king, but he's really not our king. We have but one king. Caesar is it. An odd relationship. But it's questions about the kingdom. And I begin to think, what does it mean then if I'm going to live in the kingdom? I, you know, I'm sure that we could preach for an entire year and maybe a lifetime on what it meant to live in the kingdom. In fact, Colin said to me when I was going to preach on the kingdom, I told him, and he said, oh, I've got this really good book. It's about that thick. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot about the kingdom. But, but I guess I just want to talk to you today about, about two very simple, but in my mind, very large and challenging thoughts about life in the kingdom. The first one is this. You're going to think this is crazy. But it's this. When we're in the kingdom, we have to understand that the king is the king. That seems complicated, right? That the king is the king. Not, not this king of oppression, but the king of peace. And if he is the king, then it really does mean something. If I'm living in the kingdom and I have a king, then it really does mean something. See, Jesus is not an earthly king. But he is the king of kings. He, he is God himself reigning in our presence. It, it's really a description of who God is. That's what we talk about when we think about this king who is the king. And I suppose you probably know many of the attributes of God, and there are, there are many that we could talk about, but... But I just want to just remind you of some concept of who this king is and who God is. You know these things. God knows all things, right? Did you know that? 
He knows that. You know what happened last week at this guy's house over here? No, God knows. God knows what happened in your room last night, and God knows what's going to happen. God knows stuff. In fact, he knows all the stuff. That's who he is. That's who our king is. And and our God, this king that we serve, he, he can do stuff. In fact, he can do all things. He has all power to do all things that he'd want to do. You understand that? There is nothing too big and there's nothing too small for God. There's nothing too challenging, nothing too difficult, nothing that's beyond his grasp. There's nothing that you just say, oh man, that's too big for God. Or, oh, that's impossible, that could never happen. This is the God who created all the universe, right? He spoke and it came into existence. That's what we believe, right? Are we there or close? Okay, some of you are there. This is the God who holds it all together, who does all things. This is this powerful God that is king. And guess what? He's everywhere at once. Isn't that a good thing? He's here with me and he's there with you. He's on the other side of the world watching over those that are sleeping today. Or tonight. Or last night. I have to get my time zones right. I don't know which that is. But he's everywhere at once. There's, there's no place you can go where God's not. You, there's no mountain that you can go, no valley you can go to. I said this morning, that, that sounded like a little song, but I don't know. He, God is everywhere. There's no place that you can go where God is not. There's no deep, dark hole that you could live in. There's no deep, dark emotional hole or physical hole. There's no place that you could go that God is not there. He's everywhere. Guess what? He never changes. God never changes. He's always the same person. He's not in love with you one day and hates you the next day. God is always the same person. He doesn't hate you. <laughs> I just thought I'd better clarify that. <laughs> he always is in love with you. He's always the same. Oh, by the way, he had no beginning and he'll have no end. He is eternal, forever, the same, all there. Now, now, just a couple characteristics about who he is. You have to understand this. God is completely holy. There's no shadow of evil in him. There's no shadow, shadow of nastiness in him. There's no shadow of nothing. He is completely holy. He is completely good. He has good intention in everything that he does. You get that? He is always truthful. There's no shades of truth. There's no lie in him. He is always truthful. He is always pure. He is always faithful. He is always merciful. He is always completely just. That's who this king is. And Jesus is inviting us, choose the kind of king you want. You see, this God of ours is beyond anything that we could ever imagine or think or dream up or or hope for. He's big enough to handle every situation that you face. There is nothing in your life that he can't deal with. Do you believe that? He can overcome every obstacle. 
He has every resource at his disposal. He can solve every problem and every difficulty that we would ever face. This is the guy you want on your side. Or more properly, he's the side you want to be on. That's good, right? I mean, that's so good. In fact, I don't understand, well, I do, but I, I, I have trouble understanding why people don't eat, just jump on board when he says, I'm the king, come with me. I don't get it, why people just don't say, yeah. Yeah. Always just, always merciful, always good, always loving, always holy, always pure, always on my side. He's powerful. He can do all things. He's in all places. I'm never by myself. I'm always with him, and he never changes. Yeah. And then there's this last attribute that really messes with us. And I think it's the one that kind of gets people messed up with all the others. At least it does for me. Because you see, he has one last thing as well. Uh, he's probably a lot of things, but this is the one that kind of gets me. This king, this God of ours, is also sovereign. What that means is that, that nothing can get in the way of him accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. He's sovereign. He does what he, in all of his wisdom and knowledge and all the characters we just characteristics we just described, he does what he chooses to do. Now, the good side of this, <laughs> for all of you that are still paying attention, is that God is holy, he's good, he's righteous, he's faithful, he's just, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's not about evil. That's the good news. The tough news is that we don't always understand what it is he's doing. I'm there. Isaiah says in 55, 8 through 9, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I don't get it. Well, there's a reason. Stuff happens that we just don't understand. But he's the king. He's the king. Now, it is his sovereignty that, for me, makes the second big idea I want to talk to you about so challenging. And that's this. He's the king. I'm his subject. He's the king, I'm his subject. And, and if I'm in the kingdom, and Jesus is the king, 
with all of the attributes and qualities that we've just described. And, and I've said yes to his invitation to be a part of his kingdom life and his kingdom stuff. Then that makes me his subject. And he's the king. Now, I came to faith in the early 70s, and I know that probably dates me for a few of you, maybe more than a few of you. And, and I'm, I'm coming over here because I want you guys to hear this. <laughs> you know, kind of earlier in this century, much before I was born, uh, talk about God was pretty, it, it was not a very, it was God is this and God is that, and man, he's there. You're a sinful person, and you need to get it together, or God's going to zap you. And That's kind of the way I grew up uh, as a kid, kind of growing up. I heard those kind of messages, and I, I thankfully heard a lot of other kind of messages, but heard a lot of that. But somewhere in the late 60s or early 70s, there, there was a, another way that we began to talk. Any of you remember this, a few of you. There was a, a change in how we began to talk about God, and we began to talk about God like he was our friend. Yeah, you remember that? Those kind of conversations? I was in college and, and, and I had friends of mine, they, they just talk about God and they just say, well, you know, God's my best buddy and we hang out and, 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 and it's so good. We just kind of go together and, and man, everywhere I go, I just talk to him like he's my friend and, and it's all good and, and we just kind of went along that way. And I got to tell you, it really helped me. It, it helped me begin to understand that, that God was not this angry father up there who was looking for every opportunity to zap me but rather that God was approachable, that, that God would listen, that God was interested in my life and was walking with me through my stuff and not just somebody way over there and I'm over here. It was very helpful to me and I think still is a helpful concept for us. But this is also kind of what we need to understand. Is that he's still the king. And I'm still the subject. And, and, you know, it's wonderful that God is my good friend and he walks with me through all this stuff. But, but a relationship with God is more than just us hanging out watching the football game on, you know, Sunday afternoon. It, 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 it's, it's more than that. And, and, and this, this relationship of the king as king and me as subject, it, it has implications on who I am and how I live my life and how I approach life. When we start walking into the presence of the king, it changes our perspective forever. One of the great examples of this, I think, is in the prophet Isaiah. And if you have your Bibles there, uh, flip over to Isaiah Chapter 6, it, it is a description of, of Isaiah when he came into an encounter with God and it, and it just changed who he was and how he thought about his life. Isaiah chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 1, this is what it says. Let me read it for us. It says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. Have you seen a seraph lately? Anybody seen one recently? 
Well, they're described here, so you don't need to. But, well, maybe you do. I, I've never seen one, but, but here's a description. There, there, there were six, or there were seraphs, and each of them had six wings, and with, with two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew, and, and they just had one thing to say. They just kept saying it over and over again. They said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And they just say it over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Did you hear it? Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Can you see this picture? It is this very different image of God. It is God who is lifted up on his holy temple and, and there's stuff going on. It's, it's big. It's going. And, and there's these odd creatures flying around and they're, they're proclaiming the holiness of God over and over and over and over again. Something begins to happen is that the sound of their voices, thresholds and doorposts shook and the temple was filled with smoke. It was a different kind of place. We worship in a pretty pristine kind of environment. I have the feeling that that was not quite so pristine. It was, it was huge and it was full of the glory of God. And in that experience, Isaiah said these words, he says, Woe am I, for I live, excuse me, woe am I, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen, what? The King. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, something happens. Something happens in that moment. And he begins to see himself in a different way. It says, then one of the seraphs flew to me and with a live coal from his, in his hand, which he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. You see, something happens when you come into the presence of the king. Something happens when you come into the king, presence of the king. You begin to see the, the amazing holiness of God. Somehow you get into his presence and, and you see who he is and you see that he is high and lifted up, that he is almighty, that he is all powerful, that he is this God who has always been and always will be, that he never changes, that he can do whatever he wants to do. And then you begin to see yourself in a different Isaiah said, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, basically what he's saying, he says, I'm sinful. I do stupid stuff. And pretty regularly at that. And you know what? I live amongst the people who do the same kind of stuff. You see, when we enter into the presence of God, 
We see God very differently and we see ourselves very differently. And can I just say this? If you're entering into the presence of God and you don't see a bigger picture of God and you don't see yourself as dust in the ground, there's something wrong. I, I'm sorry. I, and I'm, I'm all for God is my friend and, and I'm there and I'm, my life was changed because of it. But I just got to tell you, when you enter into the presence of God, we're nothing. We're nothing. We are nothing. But I am so thankful <laughs> that the kind of king we have is this king who is all merciful, all gracious. You see, if we had this king that was described in Luke chapter 19, you know what would happen? Poof, we'd be dust. We'd be gone, wiped out. But we don't have that kind of king. We've got the king who is the king of priests. We've got this king who is full of grace and full of mercy, and, and he comes and he, he forgives his guilt and atones for his sin. And he says, that's the kind of God I am. There's newness and there's freshness and there's forgiveness and there's transformation and, and you don't have to keep on the same old way that you've always been and there's hope even in the presence of this very holy God. We see how merciful God really is. that he took, as Paul says, a wretched man like me <laughs> and made me new. And in that presence of the king, we willingly embrace a new set of priorities. The God Almighty says, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And we, transformed, forgiven, mercified. <laughs> That's a whole brand new word. People. Say, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. See, I, I don't know what plans Isaiah had for the rest of his day when he got up from his vision but they got changed. I, I, don't, I don't know what life's dreams and hopes he had before he had this vision, but, but after that vision, they, they were changed. It was, it was not the same. There was no going back to the old priorities and to the old goals and to the old things that I was going to do. I had a new kind of life. And by the way, this is not one of those happy ever after assignments, just in case you're wondering. You read the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book, and what you find out was this is an assignment to go and preach. And oh, by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. Not a single soul. This is not go out and preach for a weekend and, and, and just tell the world how much God loves them and how they need to come to him. No, 
This is go out and preach every day of your life. Every day of your life, go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go out and preach the news of God. Go out every single day and tell these people get so sick and tired of it that they kill you. Hear my sin. See, that's what makes this so difficult. You see, because the king is speaking. This is this is king. This this isn't just a call to preach. I mean, this was Isaiah's kind of call to go out and be a, a, a proclaimer, but but this is not just a call to preach. This is a call to a life that says, God, anything you want of my life, that's what I want to do. God, in your presence, I see your holiness and my unworthiness, and I'm so thankful for your grace and mercy that, God, whatever you want to do with me, wherever you want to send me, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. And that's what makes this so challenging. This parable of the king and this invitation to choose the kind of king that you're going to follow, the kind of kingdom you want to live in, is challenging. I made a decision years ago when I was in college. College students. I made a decision that I was all in. I, I was all in everything. I, I'm all in. I'm not backing up. I made that decision years ago. But I continually have to reaffirm that decision in my life. He's the king, and I'm the subject. In the greatness of his character, I've said, God, do whatever you want to do with me. You choose. You've heard me say this before, but it's a little phrase I use. It says, it says, God, shape me and transform me, mold me, use me. And the last one, that makes it so challenging to me, but is just as true. Not only shape me, transform me, mold me, use me, but God, come Consume me. Consume me. And, and, I, and I, I'm not just talking about consume me. I'm so glad he does. I'm so glad he consumes my bad attitudes and my bad habits and the stupid things that I've said and done. I, I, I'm so glad for those kinds of things. But I, I'm so glad he wants to consume my sinful nature. <laughs> He says to me, you know, I don't have to always live like that. But I mean literally consume me. God, I no longer belong to myself. I belong to you. You use me how you want to use me. Do what you want to do with me. Take me out beyond myself. Do what you want to do. And God, if, if I end up dead like Isaiah like a whole bunch of others, God, it's okay. 
And, and that's the tension that we live in. We, we serve this God who can do all things. He is king. He's all-powerful and almighty. But I've also said to him, God, I'm the subject. I'm your subject. You are my king. Do what you want to do in me. And I've had to say, do what you want to do in mine as well. For you see, he is sovereign. And I willingly choose to live under his sovereignty. It is the path of holiness. It's what we talked about. Janet mentioned that earlier. It's, it's holiness that says we willingly entrust all that we are. We submit to his sovereignty. We give ourselves into the hands of our king. This is not, this is not a call to a life of health and wealth and great success. If God blesses you that way, use it for his kingdom. But it's not what this is. It's an in invitation to embrace the king, his will, and his desires now and forever, always. This morning, we're, we're going to share in communion. And, and it, it, is, it is the remembrance of this one who came as the king of peace, not the king of oppression, but the king who came to restore, to redeem, to heal. And in these elements, he invites us, invites us to remember fresh anew that he is king and we are subjects in his kingdom. And as we take these elements, his broken body and shed blood, we say, oh God, these are the symbols of your kingdom. Take my life. Have your way done in it. Fill me. Use me. Shape me. Mold me. Even consume me. There are some folks that are standing out in the foyer. And if you'd like to talk to somebody about God's sovereignty, about his rule in your life about holiness, about where it meets the road for you. For me, it meets the road with Norma. When I say, God, I, I know you're able. I know that's the kind of God you are. And I tell you what, I ask those questions like you probably ask them too. Why not, God? Why not? Why can't you just heal her? That's the way I pray. 
But you know, I also say, God, you are sovereign. That's the tension. You may have a spot like that in your life where you're saying, God, I know you can. I don't know why you're not. And maybe you need to say, God, you're the king. I'm subject. Do what you know best. For you are God. And we're about more than just this life. your way and your will done in us. We pray in Jesus' name.